And so I invite you now to stand for reading of God's word. This morning we're in 1 Kings chapter 19. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria, and Jehu to be the son of Nimshi, you anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel Maholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. The one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Around eight or nine years ago, a good friend told me about a spiritual revival of sorts that was making its wave through Africa and the Middle East and right here in the United States. This revival was centered on a so-called miraculous work of God. One particular miracle that happened 
over and over and over again, and it was spreading from church to church to church. Those who witnessed this miracle, they believed that they were seeing the very power of God unfolded right before them. What was this miracle? They believed that if you prayed a prayer of faith, and that if you took a penny and you held it up against a wall with your thumb, and you prayed that God would hold it there, that if you took your hand off of it, the penny would stay stuck to the wall without any kind of tape or adhesive. He then began to show me YouTube videos of people doing this very thing, praying that God would stick a penny to the wall and them saying, look, don't you see the power of God? If he can stick a penny to the wall without tape or adhesive, surely he could heal your disease. So naturally, when I heard this story, I had two reactions. The first was skepticism. The second was I have to try that. And so I went home and I found a penny, which is not always easy. Maybe that's a miracle in of itself. Found a penny and I put it up against the side of the wall of my apartment, held it with my thumb like this. And as though I felt a little silly, as genuinely as I possibly could, I prayed that God would hold the penny there. And as I pulled my thumb away, I was surprised to see that there the penny was, held against the wall. After about 30 seconds of staying there, it fell. So I decided to try it again. Picked up the penny. I held it back there for about a minute, except this time I didn't pray a thing. Maybe I thought about baseball or the Rangers or something I was going to eat later that day, but I made sure that my thoughts were completely devoid of anything of God. And as I held the penny there, I pulled my thumb away, and you know what I saw? There the penny was, staying right there, stuck to the side of the wall. You see, as it turns out, there's something about drywall and a penny that makes a penny function almost like a suction cup. And as you hold a penny to the side of especially waxy paint, the pressure in between the penny and the wall becomes lower. And the pressure outside of the penny becomes higher. And the high pressure outside of the penny forces itself up against that penny and holds it to the wall, at least for a little while. What people believed was a miracle turned out just to be party trick. What does this say about us as a people? Are Christians just gullible? Are Christians just prone to believe anything? You see, what I want us to see this morning is that I believe that people trusted that God was sticking a penny to the wall, not because they believed too much, but because they believed too little. You see, I think sometimes you and I are desperate to see God's miraculous power and something as almost silly as a penny 
because we have forgotten to recognize his miraculous power every single day. What we will see this morning is that though God comes in great power and dramatic fashion, the greatest miracle that you and I could ever witness is that he would draw near to us. And so in our passage this morning, we see Elijah, this great prophet of courage and faith, suddenly filled with fear and doubt. He forgot the power of God. And so God draws near to him. He cares for him. And he reassures him that he is both faithful and powerful. And he reveals to him that the greatest thing that he has ever done for us is that he has drawn near. So I want to look at this in just a few ways this morning. The first is this. God is faithful. This morning, I want you to know that God is faithful, even when we are faithless. Now, I, I want to catch us up here just for a second, especially if you're just now joining us. We've already, in just a couple weeks, seen God do amazing things through Elijah's ministry. Just two weeks ago, we saw how Elijah raised the widow's son from the dead. Last week, if you were with us, we saw how Elijah challenged the people of Israel who were worshiping Baal. They were worshiping idols, and he said, look, how long will you limp between two opinions? If God is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him, but you cannot worship both. And then he called down fire from heaven that consumed the altar of the Lord and then they gathered up and captured all the prophets of Baal and put them to death. All of this has led us to this point. I want you to look at verse 1. We're told that Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah has done, how he had killed the prophets of Baal. And what I want you to notice is that up until this point, Elijah has been primarily dealing with Ahab. But all the while... All the while who he's really been dealing with is Jezebel. She's been the one in the background. She's been the one who had the prophets of God killed in chapter 18, verse 4. We're told that it was at her table that all the prophets of Baal ate, chapter 18, verse 9. And now she is invoking those false gods once more. And this is what she has declared. Elijah, I'm going to do to you what you have done to the prophets of Baal. And if I don't, may I die. In other words, Elijah, I'm coming from you. I am coming for you, and I'm going to take you down. Verse 3, we're told this, Then Elijah was afraid. He arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba. God's great prophet the same prophet who rose a widow's son from the dead, the same prophet who just called fire down from heaven, suddenly is filled with fear and doubt. This is surprising. I mean, Elijah, of all that you just witnessed, 
the very of power of God through your own hand, how could you suddenly question his power? You stood up courageously to the prophets of Baal, and yet now you're running as a coward in fear and in doubt. He's running for his life. Verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tray. And notice what he says. He asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Elijah sees his ministry now as a complete failure. I have done no better than my father's at ridding the idolatry from the people of God. And so I might as well just hide under a broom tree and die. Elijah believes he's the only one left. It's not true, by the way, but he thinks it's true. He thinks he's the only one left who believes in God. He has isolated himself, overwhelmed with self-pity, overwhelmed with self-importance, overwhelmed with fear, and overcome with doubt. The question for us this morning is what do we do with that? What do we do when we see one of God's prophets, one of his servants, one of his men of faith suddenly faithless? Is it possible to be a believer in God and yet still have doubt? How could Elijah be this way? Because this is true of our experience, if we're going to be honest. You see, I think we need, as the church, to begin to be honest about doubt. Doubt has almost become taboo in the Christian church. We feel like it's something we can't talk about or admit. That even though we believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, even though we believe that one day he will return again, even though we believe that he has done great things, sometimes we doubt that he has done great things with us. This is where Elijah found himself. And I think it's where we find ourselves often. When the storms of life come, when we look at our circumstances, the things that we hold on to be true about God and his power, suddenly we begin to question. And suddenly we find ourselves like Elijah, wrestling just like the people of God, wavering between two opinions. Can God be trusted? God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, why would you let this happen? God, would you please show me who you really are? Before I became a pastor, I struggled deeply with doubt. I struggled sinfully with doubt, questioning God's very existence, questioning the Bible, questioning the church, 
And what I found after I came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, after by the power of the Holy Spirit, he got a hold of my heart and illuminated my heart and mind and gave me the gift of faith. Do you know what I discovered? I still struggle with doubt. And you say, well, how could that be? How could a pastor struggle with doubt? Well, I think in the same way that a prophet could struggle with doubt. And I don't think I'm alone. Charles Spurgeon. I do not believe there ever existed a Christian yet who did not now and then doubt his interest in Jesus. I think when a man says, I never doubt, it is quite time for us to doubt him. John Calvin in the Institutes. Surely while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt or any assurance that is not assailed by some anxiety. Do you feel that this morning? Do you feel that though you believe, sometimes there are these little lingering doubts? Or though you hold on to the assurance that you have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ, there's still anxiety that rears its ugly head. More recently, Eugene Peterson Belief in God does not exempt us from feelings of abandonment by God. Praising God does not inoculate us from doubts about God. So I want you to ask yourself this morning, how honest are you with yourself and with God about your faith? How sure is your faith really that God is who he says he is? What circumstances have you brought into the sanctuary with you or sins that have held you down? What things have happened in your life or in the lives of others that this week have caused you to question, God, can you be trusted? If you find yourself wrestling this morning with faith and doubt, I want you to see this. God is faithful. Verse 5. Verse 5, it tells us that Elijah lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Now, this was not just any angel. Verse 7 tells us that this is the angel of the Lord. And if you have read the Old Testament, you know that wherever the angel of the Lord appears, that people fell down and worshiped him. But the book of Genesis even describes the angel of the Lord as God himself. This is why the earliest church fathers thought that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament was none other than Jesus Christ himself. In other words, before he came down and took on flesh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity was there ministering to Elijah in the midst of his doubt. He was caring for him. He was providing for him. He was giving him food to eat. He was restoring him body and soul. Verse 6, Elijah looked and behold, there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and drank and he lay down. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. Do you see God's care 
Do you see God's provision? God does not abandon Elijah even though he ran away. God does not leave him there to be consumed in his doubt. Just because Elijah is now having these thoughts of faithlessness, God is faithful still. The Old Testament uses a word to describe God's faithfulness. It's the word in Hebrew, hesed. This word hesed describes God's covenant love. In your Bibles, it's often translated as steadfast love. Let me give you an example. Lamentations chapter 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The idea is that God's love is steadfast. His love is loyal. His love is faithful. But of all my favorite translations of God's covenant love, his hesed, my favorite translation is not found in the ESV or the NIV or the NASB. Now, my favorite translation is found in a children's Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. This is how the Jesus Storybook Bible translates the word hesed. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. This morning, if you find yourself struggling with your faith, Perhaps you need to see God through the eyes of a child. To see his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. That though sometimes you feel like giving up, God does not give up on you. That though sometimes you have broken your vow to him, God will not break his vow to you. And though our love sometimes wanes, and sometimes we love other gods before him, God's love is always and forever. The second thing I want us to see this morning, very quickly, is that God is powerful. He's faithful and he's powerful. Why don't you look at verse 8? We're told that Elijah arose, he ate and drank, and went in strength for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. A couple things I want you to notice. The first is this. Mount Horeb is the same mountain as Mount Sinai. In other words, Elijah is going to the same mountain where God met with Moses. As well, we're told it took him 40 days and 40 nights. That's significant. That's how long Moses met with God on the mountain. We're told, uh, verse 9, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. The Hebrew here is probably better translated, he came to the cave and lodged in it. It uses a direct article. Same way that you would with a proper noun. In other words, this is the cave on Mount Sinai. The very cave where Moses hid his face in the cleft of the rock. And so here Elijah, struggling in despair, overwhelmed with fear and doubt, has run away only to be met with God. 
And behold, the word of the Lord, verse 9 tells us, came to Elijah and he said, what are you doing here? God is not asking Elijah this question for his own benefit, but just like Adam and Eve, when he asked them, where are you? He's coming to Elijah and he's saying, check yourself, Elijah. What are you doing here? I didn't tell you to go to Horeb. I didn't tell you to run away. What are you doing here? Where is your heart? And Elijah says, verse 10, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, the people of Israel forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed the prophets, and I am the only one left. I want you to see just how selective Elijah's memory is. You see, all of this is true, except it wasn't entirely true. Yes, the people had forsaken the covenant, but chapter 18 ends with the people of God now returning back to him. Yes, the altar had been destroyed, but chapter 18 tells us how they rebuilt the altar and repaired it. And yes, prophets have been killed by the sword, but Elijah's not the only one left. Elijah, all he can see is all the bad things that have happened, and he cannot see any longer all that God has done by his mighty and powerful hand. My friends, this is exactly what we do, isn't it? We are so prone to forget the power of God in our lives. We get tunnel vision. All we can see is right what's before us. Or all we can be overwhelmed with is fear of what's to come that we so much, just like Elijah, develop a selective kind of memory that as we look back on our lives, we fail to see how God has met us time and time and time again. It was true of Elijah. It's true of the people of God. It's true of us. That's why the Psalms call us to the discipline of remembering. Psalm 105, verse 5, remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles, the judgments he uttered. So we need to learn to develop and cultivate the discipline of remembering God's powerful work. When is the last time that you thought about some miraculous way that God has entered into your life? Some way that he has moved in power in your life when is the last time that you truly meditated on that? The last time that you gave thanks? Or the last time that you faced something uncertain in your future and you made sure to look back on your past and to recount the deeds that God has done? God is coming to Elijah on Mount Sinai to remind him that he's powerful, that he's always been powerful and he always will be powerful. And so verse 11, he comes to Elijah, he says, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And he sends a mighty wind. He sends a powerful earthquake and he sends fire from heaven. In other words, he is reenacting all the ways that he came in power to Moses and God's people as he rescued them from Egypt. He's reminding Elijah, Elijah, don't forget what I've done. I have rescued my people with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and my rescue is powerful. 
and it's still powerful. Elijah, I have come in power to rescue you. But the last thing I want us to see, the greatest miracle that God has worked in our midst is that he would draw near. This is where I want to end this morning. Verse 12. We're told that after God sent a mighty wind and an earthquake and fire from heaven, that he was, though he sent those things to display his power, he was not in those things. And verse 12, and after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. God came to Elijah in a low whisper. He sent a mighty wind. He wasn't in the wind. He sent an earthquake, but he wasn't in the earthquake. He sent fire, but he wasn't in the fire. No, he was in the sound of a low whisper. You see, the great tragedy, I think, of our current modern age is that we'd be so prone to look for these great displays of grandeur that we would miss the miracle right in front of us. 18th century philosopher David Hume is considered the father of modern skepticism. And he wrote a little work about miracles, calling them into question. This is what he had to say, and I've said it before from this pulpit. It's one of my favorite quotes. Today, it takes a miracle for any reasonable person to believe in the Christian religion. For this requires more than reason, it requires faith. But anyone who is moved by faith into such belief must be aware of a continuing miracle within him. Here's why I love that quote. Because all truth is God's truth. And though David Hume wrote these words to call miracles into question, I think what he's saying is exactly right. That if you're going to believe in the gospel, if you're going to believe in the Christian faith that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down, was born of a virgin, that he took on flesh, that he died on a cross, and he rose again so that all who believe in him would have life, if you're going to believe that, then you have to be aware of a continuing miracle inside of you. That is absolutely true. The greatest miracle that God has ever performed is that he would draw near to us and take up residence inside our hearts. And so as he comes to Elijah, he tells him, he tells him to go and anoint a man named Haziel to be king over Syria. In other words, he's saying, Elijah, I'm still powerful, and I'm going to remain powerful over the nations. Then he tells Elijah to go and anoint Jehu to be king over Israel. In other words, he's saying, Elijah, I am faithful, and I'm going to remain faithful over my people Israel. And then he tells Elijah to anoint a new prophet in his place, a man named Elisha. In other words, he's saying, Elijah, I'm now drawing near to you. And I'm drawing near to you with my word. Brothers and sisters, greater than any mighty wind, 
greater than any earthquake, greater than any fire sent down from heaven, and yes, greater than a penny stuck to a wall. God has drawn near to us in his word. Do you see the miracle that this really is? This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. And by his faithfulness and grace through his word, he is drawn near to us. The same God who created the universe and spoke it into being by a word of his power. The same God who led his people out of Egypt by parting the Red Sea. The same God who, by the hand of Elijah, defeated the prophets of Baal. This same God has drawn near to us through the word, capital W, the Son, Jesus Christ. And now the Son dwells in your hearts through faith. My friends, he has drawn near to you. The question as we end for us this morning is will we draw near to him? Will we respond in our hearts with faith? We will recognize that he has drawn near to us through the word and through the word, Jesus Christ. Will he receive him? This morning, if you are a doubter, if you are a skeptic like I was before Jesus Christ, before I believed, will you consider that the God of the universe has drawn near to give you the gift of faith? And this morning, if you are a Christian like me, and yet from time to time, even on a morning like this, you feel doubt and fear creeping in, the Lord is faithful. He is powerful and he has drawn near to you. May we now draw near to him in confidence and boldness as we come to the throne of grace. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing. Our Father, we even pray that prayer this morning because of the miracle that resides now in our hearts. That we who were once orphaned and far off have been drawn near to become sons and daughters and so now we call you Father. We thank you for the gift of the Son and for now the indwelling Holy Spirit and the continuing miracle that is now within us. We pray, God, that you would help us to be honest about our faith and sometimes our lack of faith. And Lord, as you draw near to us this morning, may we respond by drawing near to you. Do this now even as we sing these truths to one another to you in Jesus' name. Amen.